Hey, good morning, everyone. Great to see you. Nice to get a little respite with the weather. So hope you're enjoying that. I know I am. We've been on the subject of life and money and legacy. We've been allowing ourselves to be tutored by Dave Ramsey, who's... Uh, whose best practices right now with an understanding of biblical principles around stewardship and money management. And this has been very helpful. I just want to announce that our Financial Peace University uh, now has the largest class we've ever had. So if, so if, you're, if you're holding out and you're not going to, you know, you've got your heels in about financial peace, uh, hang on for a little bit longer and you'll be the last person in, in America who's not taken Financial Peace University. So quite a distinction. And <laughs> obviously that's a sideways way to encourage you to get involved with financial peace when you get a chance next time. And we're, uh, we're so excited about how this is changing lives. So today I want to conclude this series on a biblical framework for wealth. What happens to us? What does the Bible have to say to us when we actually begin to practice these principles of the biblical vision for management and stewardship? And when we do that, we begin to create success because it actually works and what does the bible have to say to us as we find ourselves with uh, more and more margins in our lives financially so i've chosen as our text this morning from the book of proverbs chapter 13 i'm going to read the proverbs 18 through 25 proverbs are are, are statements that are generally true uh, they're not they're they're principled statements they are not necessarily uh, ironclad promises from the Bible. Uh, what the, the Proverbs is about the wisdom of God. So, so the Proverbs come across as if you do things like this, it'll tend to work out like that. And, and so it gives us guidelines and, and, as I say, wisdom for life. And so here are some of the Proverbs that come out of chapter 13. Our custom is to stand to hear God's word as you're able to do that. Thank you for doing it. Here's verse 18. Whoever disregards discipline comes to poverty and shame, but whoever heeds correction is honored. A longing fulfilled is sweet to the soul, but fools detest turning from evil. Walk with the wise and become wise, for a companion of fools suffers harm. Trouble pursues the sinner, but the righteous are rewarded with good things. A good person leaves an inheritance for their children's children, but a sinner's wealth is stored up for the righteous. An unplowed field produces food for the poor, but injustice sweeps it away. Whoever spares the rod hates their children, but the one who loves their children is careful to discipline them. The righteous eat to their heart's content, but the stomach of the wicked goes hungry. Now may God enlighten and inspire us today through his word. You may be seated. Thank you so much. So what does the Bible have to say about people who begin to experience a wealth evolution, if you will, through the application of biblical principles. And so let's unpack that just for a little bit as we conclude this series. On your outline today, you'll see uh, four different points that I want to make. And the first one is this, you wanna write this down, you need the word now, N-O-W, now. Take care of your household first. First things first. Now, most people in our culture today are stuck in their now, N-O-W. They have their heads down, they're working hard, they get paid on Friday, and it's all gone by Monday. 
It's the rat in a wheel. They're just running, running, running to make ends meet. It's hand to mouth, paycheck to paycheck. And as you live in the now, and, and all of us have been there, we understand what that is like. When a person starts applying these biblical principles and they start to win in their financial lives, their first priority, according to the scripture, is their household. Paul said to Timothy, the young protege, 1 Timothy 5.8, anyone who does not provide for his own, especially for those of his household, has denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. And so we hear a strong language here about taking care of your own, members of your house. So remember the five basic principles. This is next level genius that Dave Ramsey's help us cultivate. These five things, get on a budget, get out of debt, build great relationships, save and invest, give generously. And the more you practice these things, the more margins start to occur in your life. Finally, someone wakes up and goes, you know, I actually believe that getting out of debt is based on a biblical worldview, a biblical vision that says that the, that the borrower is the slave to the lender. I actually believe that now. And so you take an extra job, you work extra hours, you start selling stuff off. In fact, you start selling stuff off so fast that you think your kids think they're next. I mean, you scare everybody because you're determined to pay off your debts. And you get busy about that. God looks down on a person like that and says, now look at that guy, look at that gal. I mean, they're getting a heart of wisdom and they're ordering their lives and they're doing wise things. And so those are people now I can bless, I can trust with my blessing. So you have a written plan, it's called a budget. You start to save, you start to invest, you're giving generously, you start to accumulate wealth. And when that happens, you no longer have to worry about right now. So the old adage, nose to the grindstone, that's a pretty good symbol, isn't it? Because people just, you know, they're going and they're going, they're, they got, I gotta pay the bills, I gotta pay the mortgage next month, I gotta stay busy, I gotta stay on it. And as soon as margins start get created, and this takes some time, but when it begins to happen, the natural Im- indication of that is when you kind of stop looking down and into the now, you look up and you can see the future. Okay, now I, I, I don't have all these pressure points on a daily, monthly basis, but now I can see the future, maybe even all the way out to my retirement. This is the second point on your outline. It's the word then, T-H-E-N, then. You look toward the future. The Bible says in Proverbs 29, 18, where there is no vision, the people perish. We might paraphrase that and say, where there is no vision, people retire with no money. So your debt is cleared, you have an emergency fund, then you can look up and you can see forward. Yeah, it's a nice thing. You can start investing so you can retire with dignity. The other alternative is I'm going to work hard all my life, and then when I retire, I'm going to ask the government to take care of me. You know, the government that is so good at managing money, they're going to watch after me. No, no. I will apply biblical principles to my life now so that in my future, I can finish well. And that's, and, and that's actually a, a, a behavior that is faithful. It, it's an exercise of my faith because I see the biblical principles, I've learned them, I understand them, and so now I'm going to apply them as an act of my own faith, trusting faith in God, because he expects us to plan and to think and to envision our future financially. Now, you've heard me say this at the beginning of this series, I'll say it again because I feel it so poignantly. I wish, 
I wish so much that I had access to this information 30 years ago. And I said at the beginning of this series, the younger you are, the more relevant this information is. Now, it's relevant to everyone, but the younger you are, the more powerful this information is and empowering it is. For example, if you're 30 years old and you save 15% of your income every year, the average income in America right now is $48,000. That's the average. And you never make more than $48,000. And you take 15% of that, which is $7,200 every year, and you invest it in a, a, a good growth stock mutual fund, uh, Roth IRAs. When you are 70 years old, you will have $7.4 million. $7.4 million. Everyone say, wow. That's a big wow, isn't it? What if I'm half wrong? That's a big number. I mean, that's a huge thing. Where there is no vision for the future, people perish. They struggle. You've heard this. We've said this out loud before. $100 per month saved and invested from age 30 to age 70 is over a million dollars. 100 bucks a month. Yeah. So you have to reorient your life so you're no longer looking down and you start looking up. One of the big financial questions in our culture today is, is college expenses. It's a big deal. It's a big challenge. Well, if you, if you start saving $166 per month when your baby's born, over the course of the next 18 years, $166 a month is about $2,000 a year, actual money. You invest that in an ESA, an educational savings account, or a 529 plan, and the state of Indiana has that. You put it in there until the child is 18, and that's only 36,000 actual dollars at $166 a month. But it grows in those 18 years to approximately $126,000 when you actually need it for your child's college. It's a, it, again, it's the opportunity you have when you start applying these principles and you start developing margins and you can look up and you can see into the future and begin to plan for your future. So we start with now, we progress to then, the next step is us. Write that down, U-S, us. This is changing your family tree. I just wanna remind us that it is a biblical concept to create generational wealth. It's okay, it's a good thing, it's a godly thing, it's a biblical thing to pass wealth on generation to generation. It's a legacy that changes the family tree. You can change your family's future by applying these principles. Now this, this assumes, of course, that you've been careful to teach your children and then your grandchildren values related to money and management and giving. And this is a reference that actually makes people feel a bit uncomfortable. It's kind of an awkward subject for us because uh, so few of us, you know, engage it well. But this is about legacy. Now think about that. What will your legacy look like? What are you going to leave to your children and your grandchildren? Not just in monetary values, but in other values like modeling and convictions and faith and relationships and service in addition to material wealth. What kind of shadow will you cast? What will be the residual effect of your life after you're gone? 
It's an important question. Most of you know that my father uh, recently passed away a few weeks ago. He was 88 years old. And when my dad was 41 years old, this was 1972, my dad was 41 years old. I was 17. I had been a Christian for one year. My father worked shoulder to shoulder in a, in a small family business, a small town grocery store. He worked next to my Uncle Bill. This was not only my dad's best friend, but his brother-in-law. He had married my dad's sister, so my uncle, Bill, and my dad worked together uh, for almost 20 years. They were best friends and business partners. And my uncle Bill developed cancer and was dying. The first time I ever heard my dad cry was I heard him in his uh, master bedroom bath one afternoon crying and I went in, he tried to compose himself quickly, but my uncle Bill, his best friend was dying and my dad didn't have any spiritual resource to cope with that grief, with that loss. You all understand there's a big difference between grieving with hope and grieving without hope. There's a, there's a great chasm there. Later that summer, in August, my Uncle Bill passed away. We got the call one evening, and we were all very sad. We all loved our Uncle Bill. And we all went to bed and went to sleep. I was asleep. And I, sometime after midnight on that August evening, my mother came to my bedroom, and she woke me up. She said, Dad wants to talk to you. Now, the reason for that is because when I became a Christian at 16, I've shared my witness with you before, when I met Jesus, I, I did, found Jesus to be the most interesting, wonderful, compelling, inspirational person I'd ever met. So when I met Jesus at 16, I started running hard after God. I mean, I ran very quick. I, I was full sprint right out of the gate. And this, that's almost been 50 years ago. And I just, as I'm standing here before you today, let me tell you the number one reason why I do what I do. It's because Jesus is amazing. There's no one like him. I think everybody ought to know who Jesus is. Your life will be better, much better, exponentially better if you know Jesus. And my dad had noticed that I was running hard after God, and so it occurred to him, maybe Greg will know what I should do. And so at 41, he summons me to his bedroom, and I went in and sat on the edge of their bed, and my dad was distraught. He, he was hopeless. And he looked at me through his tears, and he said, Greg, I don't know what to do. And I looked at my dad, and I said, I know what you need to do. You need to make Jesus Christ your Savior and your Lord. I said, Dad, you don't have any hope. What you need is hope, and Jesus alone can provide hope. And he said, okay. So how do I do that? And for a moment, I had a sense of panic. Now my dad's asking me, okay, how do I, how do I know Jesus? And, I, and so I quickly had to think about that because I'd never really led anyone else to Jesus. But then I quickly remembered. I reminisced just a year before that when I was 16 and I knew that I needed Jesus, but I didn't know what to do either. And I found myself at the front of a church, a little Methodist church, and, and there was a man there praying for people and he came down the line and he put his hand on top of mine and he looked at me and he said, he said, are you okay? And I said, I don't think so. 
He said, do you know Jesus as your Savior? And I said, I don't. He said, would you like to? And I said, I would. He said, do you know what to do? I said, I don't. He said, I know what to do. And he said, I'm going to pray with you. And all you have to do is repeat these words after me and believe them and God will hear you. And that kind man led me to Christ. And I remembered that. And I just thought to myself, I can do that for my dad. And so my dad knelt down next to his bed and I knelt down beside him and my mother beside me. It was an August evening, middle of the summer in Indiana. This was a second story bedroom. They had their window open, some shears hanging in front of that window. Dead calm outside. And I led my dad in a simple prayer. And when my dad said amen to the prayer to receive Christ into his own life, though, listen to me, God's, God's listening to what I say. I'll have to give an account for everything I say. I'm very sober when I tell you this. A wind, could I just say the wind of God came through the second story window of that bedroom and stood those shears straight out for about three seconds. The wind of God stood them out like that for three seconds and then they just fell completely calm again. Now at 17, I had a very fully formed theology. My dad looked at me and he said, what was that? And in my well-informed theological world, I said, I don't know. <laughs> I know now what it was. I said, then I think that was God. I know now it was the wind of God. And my dad started running hard for God just like I did. He never turned back. He never equivocated. He, ne he never stumbled. He never compromised. When dad became 82, we were on the phone one day and he said, hey, now that I'm 82, our birthdays were just two days apart. And he said, now that I'm 82, he said, I realized something. He said, I've been a Christian now as long as I was not a Christian in my life. He said, that means a lot to me. One of his good friends was named Brad, and at the memorial a few weeks ago, Brad was distraught. Brad loved my dad, and they had great friendship, fellowship. They played golf all the time. They just loved him. And he came up to me, and he was in tears, and, and he was distraught. And he said, I don't know what to do. He said, I don't know. I don't think I can make it. You know, your dad was such a good friend, and I just loved him so much, and our fellowship was so, so sweet, and I just don't know if I can make it. And I looked at Brad, and I said, when he, when he said out loud, I don't know what to do. I said, sure you know what to do. Of course you know what to do. Dad laid down his mantle. And now our responsibility is to pick it up. We pick it up from here and, car and carry it forward. That's what we do. That's his legacy. A legacy of integrity and a legacy of faithfulness and a legacy of service. And Christ-likeness, he laid it down, we pick it up. Another man, a friend of dad's I'd never met before, he's in the line coming through at the memorial visitation hour. He said, hi, I was a friend of your dad's. And he said, I'm sorry for your loss. And then this guy looks at me and he said, you know, your dad recently asked me to join the Gideons. Well, my dad was a member of the Gideons for many years. When I was out in his garage looking for something that my mother didn't know where it was, which is now a common theme of our lives. We don't know where anything is. And I was 
trying to find this thing out in the garage, and I opened this storage closet, and here are hundreds and hundreds of Bibles, these little pocket New Testaments that the Gideons published. My dad would take a couple of these boxes just ever so often. He'd go down to Purdue University and stand on a, on a cross, crosswalk, and he'd hand out Bibles to students. I mean, who does that? My dad did that. And so I find all these Bibles. And so this friend says, my, your dad just said I should join the Gideons. And I said, I didn't even blink. I leaned toward him and I said, you should sign up right now. I said, there's a position opening <laughs> in the Lafayette camp. There's a seat. There's a seat available. This guy left it. Now you go sit in it. We know what to do. Revelation 14, 13 says, blessed are those who die in the Lord. They will rest from their labors and their deeds will follow them. That's the legacy piece, friends. You understand that you cast a shadow. There's, re there's residue that remains from your life. And it's not just a few bucks you accumulate. That's part of it. But it's about who you are as a person at the level of your character and the quality of your life and the noble way that you've gone through the world. This is what you leave. This is the primary result that you give to your children and your children's children. This is an amazing thing. So I start thinking about my kids and my grandkids and then on to my great grandkids and beyond. And I think about changing their lives and their future simply by the quality of the life that I live. Now, if that doesn't inspire you, then you're living too much in the now or you're living too much in the then, you know, in your own future. But you've got to get past that to us as a family, to change your family tree, to adjust the legacy of your family. You know, the blessing of God goes from generation to generation, and the curses that, that we incur by our poor behaviors and patterns also follow us generation after generation. And so for many of us, what, what the opportunity presents itself is that you can break a curse off of your family's life. And starting with... gotten a number of these notes now in cards and emails and so forth and my friend will say and this this has happened many times I did not know your dad watch it now I did not know your dad but I know you isn't that what you want isn't that what you should shoot for Isn't that what you want your children to hear? Uh-huh. This is about legacy. So with regard to the way you pass on, the, in a practical way, the things that God has entrusted you to, to your own children, some things to remember. I put these on your outline. They're just straightforward. I'll put them up on the screen for you. Here's the first thing to remember. Whoever you are before you have some money gets amplified when you do have money. If you're poor with people before, you'll be incorrigible with people after. If you're generous before, you'll become a philanthropist after. If you have a quick temper before you have money, you'll become a rageaholic when you have it. If you're kind and patient, 
your, your patience will become legendary after you have some assets. If your marriage is vulnerable before, becomes even more vulnerable after. So I have to consider who I am, not just what I have. Otherwise, it becomes dangerous. Dangerous for me to have leadership or influence or a position or status or financial wealth because all of these things become a great responsibility and we want to pass them off well. Dave Ramsey apparently has some access to teams in the National Football League. Some people half-jokingly say NFL stands for not for long because of the way players come and go. But nothing's so vulnerable, think about it, as a 22-year-old with a $10 million signing bonus. How do you, how do you manage that? There's a, there's a shockingly high percentage of professional athletes who end up completely broke. I mean, there are countless stories of guys who, you know, in their career they made $50 million, $60 million. Today they're completely broke. <laughs> and you just think, how is that possible? It's possible because there's not enough experience. There's not enough character there to accommodate the weight of those kind of vast quantities of money. You, you won't be surprised to know that a big percentage of lottery winners end up losing it all. Divorce rates of lottery winners is four times the national average. Does that surprise anyone? So you got to remember, whatever you are before you have a little asset is amplified when you have more asset. Here's the second thing to remember, and that is God owns it all. God owns it all. The house, the car, the investments, the spouse, the children, the dog, God owns them all. I am the manager. If I can keep the emotional disconnect, then I can better steward the blessings and assets that God sends my way. Beth and I designed and had built a custom home years ago. And it was a beautiful home. Still is a beautiful home. And we got to live there for 13 years. Virtually everyone who walked into our house, we had many guests there over the years, Everyone who walked into our home said, this is a beautiful home. This is a lovely home. I love your home. And it was. It was beautiful. I mean, we, we picked out everything. It was, it was really nice. Now, Beth and I learned over the years uh, that the right response when people would say, we love your home, was to say something like, thank you. We feel really blessed that God allows us to live here. I would rehearse that myself. Sometimes if I'd been away for a while, I'd come back to my home, really nice. Long day, get back to my home, what a nice home. And I'd walk in, I'd say, thank you, God, for letting me live in your house. This is really nice. Appreciate it. And so you, you try to keep the emotional separation. So when it come, came time to sell a house, it was easier to do that because it's not my stuff. So you, you come into the world with nothing. You leave this world You can't take it with you. Yeah. So you've got to get, keep perspective on that. If I had uh, 10 $100 bills in my pocket right now, had $1,000 in my pocket, and I just reached out and handed it to someone, here's $1,000 with this caveat. What I want you to do, I'm going to give you this $1,000, but you immediately have to take 100 of it and just hand it to someone else. You would agree to that deal. In fact, you would do it gladly, and then you'd say, let's do that again. That was fun. On the other hand, if I gave you $1,000 and I waited a week and then came back to you and said, oh, by the way, I want you to take 100 of that and give it to someone, it would be more difficult for you. And the reason it would be more difficult is over the course of the week, you would have got, become a bit attached to the $1,000. 
you enjoy having an extra thousand. Your emotions are warmed by the knowledge of you have a thousand dollars. And so you get attached to it. And so conf confusion begins to uh, get created over ownership. So we have to remember that God owns it all. And you know, it's, all, it's, easy to, it's easy to give somebody else's money. It's easy to spend someone else's money. It's because we don't have the emotional attachment to it. And so we have to remind ourselves all the time that God owns it all. Here's the other thing that we need to remember, and that is you need community around you. So important. Proverbs 11:14. In the multitude of counselors, there is safety. So you want to develop strong relationships with the right kind of people who also manage their character, their relationships, their money well. And this is a revelation now that now has research to back it up that virtually all of us eventually, watch this, start acting like, talking like, dressing like, thinking like, reading the same books like, going to the same movies like, and, and earning a similar income like the people that we hang out with. Isn't that curious? So that's why Dave Ramsey puts in one, as one of his five principles, build great relationships because it affects you and affects your money. So this is about the family tree, isn't it? If my children, how do we protect our kids? Listen, if my children are on drugs, then they don't inherit my wealth because that's not gonna help them. If my children, if, if a child of mine is living a prodigal life, He's like the prodigal son. He's just out there in riotous living, wasting his life and, and all of his assets. Then he's not going to inherit my money because it won't help them. It'll just make them worse. Beth and I have said to our boys, we have two boys, we, we have said this out loud and they understand the rules. Walk with Jesus, stay in the will. Don't walk with Jesus, you're out of the will. Just, let me just ask the question again. Who owns the family wealth? Who owns it? God owns it. So well, that's my wealth. No, no. That's yours to be responsible for, but it's not yours. You're responsible for it to handle it well with integrity and nobility, but it's not yours. So you can designate where it might go. That's the responsibility part, but it's not yours. Well, you know, all of the stuff I've earned, that belongs to my children. No, it doesn't. No, it all belongs to God. And you want to handle it, you want to steward it in a godly way. So if your kids are out there living away from the nobility of a relationship with Christ, then you don't give them more money. It just makes them worse. King David raised money for the temple in Jerusalem, the original temple, but he was forbade building it because of his own sin. His son Solomon ended up building the thing, but David had raised the money for it. In today's dollars, the original temple in Jerusalem would cost approximately $21 billion to build it. There's lots of gold and silver everywhere. God's house is $21 billion. Yeah. Moses stood up in Deuteronomy 30, verse 19. He said, this day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curses. So choose life so that you and your children may live. And there's the admonition. There's the call. So you need community around you to support you. And that brings us to the last idea. We, we understand living in the now. 
We can look up and see our future and plan for our retirement, plan for our children's education, those kinds of future things by, by looking at then. The next step is to imagine the whole family, the family tree, the legacy you leave. This is us together in this family. And then finally, we look out to the world and we see them, T-H-E-M, them. Change the world for God's glory. Wells can be dug, orphans can be cared for, medical care can be administered. You know, a $1,000 car can change the life of a single mom, $1,000 car. Churches can be planted. I wanna give you an update on Gulfside Church. We planted two years ago with our, with our uh, young leader, Paul Erminger, and the church is just over two years old and they just have hit the 200 threshold, the 200 mark. That's a big deal in church growth and, and church planting, church development activities. You hit the 200 threshold, that's a big, big moment. And then the next threshold is to get past 200. Beth and I, uh, this winter, will be going down there and I'll be preaching at Gulfside and I'm looking forward to that. But how good is that? So you can see the world when you have some extra asset. Invest in that kind of ministry and lives are touched and changed. It's beautiful. Let me ask you who the person is, what kind of person ends up working as a table waiter at IHOP on Thanksgiving Day. Who is that person? Let me tell you who that person is. That's a person who needs a job. They need to work. And if you live in such a way like nobody else, then at a certain point in your life, you'll be able to give like no one else. And that's the kind of person that you go into IHOP and you see this, this single mom and she's doing the best she can and she has a little story. And then after the meal, you get up and you leave a $100 or a $200 tip. And then you go out in your car and just sit in the car and look through the window to watch her reaction when she picks it up, just for fun. You pay for someone's groceries at the grocery store. You go down to Muncie Mission or Christian Ministries, one of the other agencies in town, find institutions, go in there and say to the director, it's just a private meeting. You call and you ask for an appointment. You go in and sit down and you hand them $5,000 and say, I, I want you to distribute this cash to the next five families that come into this place. Just give it to them anonymously just because I want to bless them. I have an acquaintance who carries $100 bills in his pocket. He's a Christian leader and this is how he stays sensitive to the witness of the Holy Spirit and so he just gets up every morning and says, God, be sure and point out to me anyone you need to bless today. And so he just goes through the, through the day and almost every day someone will present themselves to him and he'll walk up to them and hand them $100. Just wanted you to have a blessing today. God bless you in Jesus' name. How much fun is that? Margaret Thatcher, in reacting to the prodigal son, or the story of the Good Samaritan, Margaret Thatcher, of course, the former prime minister of Great Britain, and in reference to the Good Samaritan, remember the story. She said, no one would remember the story of the Good Samaritan if he didn't have coins. So he paid for the man who was left in the ditch, remember? His room and his board, his medical care. Then he said to the keeper, if it costs more than I will pay in full upon my return, keep an account. See, as it turns out, poor people can't feed poor people. Only people of means. So Dave Ramsey's mantra is, 
live like no one else so that someday you can live and give like no one else. And so we come to this question that we've asked each of these messages during this series, which is what could the people of God do for the kingdom of God if we were managing these matters well? It's an important question. You see in your uh, bulletin today this insert called, uh, that says Life, Money, Legacy. On the back side of it, you can see these five principles that I've been chirping about that Dave Ramsey teaches these weeks. And those are there so you can keep them in your Bible, keep them handy, maybe hang them up on the refrigerator. On the bottom, under the perforation there, there are three boxes, options that you could check. We do this every year just to encourage and inspire you to take a next step if you're ready for that. And I know some of you would be. But the three options that you can check there, and this is all volunteer, you don't have to do it. You don't, you don't cost you anything to get in, it won't cost you anything to get out. But the one thing you could check is I will continue to tithe. Now that's the biblical standard for giving. And we have many, many people in our church who tithe. That's the box that Beth and I always check. We will continue to tithe. That's our habit and pattern. I wouldn't be caught dead not tithing. And the second, the second thing that you could check is I will start to tithe. Maybe you've learned enough. Maybe your conviction level has risen high enough through this series. You're in a different place in your own life, and you realize that this is something that you want to do. You want to start tithing. That's 10% of your income to the life of the church. If, uh, if you're confused about that or worried about that, you should know that, that I offer anyone at Union Chapel a 90-day money-back guarantee. So if you start tithing and 90 days later, God hasn't met your need and you're, you're in deficit in some way, all you have to do is make one contact. You contact me. Send me an email, pick up the phone and call the office, ask for me. And we will talk and you will say to me, I've started tithing, but now I don't have enough. I need my money back. And I will give you every penny that you gave to the church. I'll just give it back to you and then I'll find out how pitiful you really are and then I'll give you more on top of that. So we have a 90-day money-back guarantee. So it's a zero risk. But the Bible says that God expects you to test him in this one. Test me now in this, says the Lord, and see if I'll not open the windows of heaven and provide a blessing for you you cannot contain. <clears throat> then, sometimes I bless myself when I'm talking. Here it... <laughs> Not often, but <laughs> the, la the other third option is I'll increase my giving with a view toward tithing. Lots of people are in that category too. You know, everyone's got a story. Everyone's got circumstances. And so here's my advice to you. If you're not giving anything, give something. Well, I can't afford to give anything. Yes, you can. When the bucket comes by, throw a buck in it. Just throw a dollar in there. Or lose change. Put a quarter in there. Put two cents in there. Put something in there. It's never about how much. It's always about why. Jesus stood and watched a bunch of people throwing an offering in at the temple one day. Disciples were there. Some big hitters were coming through, big entourage, pouring lots of money, making a lot of noise, you know, showing off how much money they put in the collection. And then a little widow woman who no one even noticed, no one saw her. She came and opened her little coin purse and pulls out two pennies throws them in that no one even noticed couldn't it was like zero impact jesus stands up points his finger says there's the best offering of the day the disciples said what are you talking about 
She said he, she gave more than anybody because she gave out of her need. She gave out of a trusting faith, confidence that God would meet her need. It's never about how much. Never always about the motivation. That's true in any area of your life. It's always about why you do it. It's all about your heart. So just decide I'm going to give if I'm not giving or I'm going to increase my giving. My view, once, once time lapses, I apply these principles, there's going to be a moment in my life someday when I'm going to be able to tithe. That's my goal. It's out there some years from here, but that's my goal. Great. So check that. I'm going to increase my giving with a view toward tithing. If you're giving 1%, then start giving 2 See how God, see how that works. So let God meet you where you are and let us encourage you in that. So you can check one of these three options. Let us have your name and a contact and, and I'll send you a letter and encourage you about the decision you made. This just helps people take a step and we want to help you take a step. So fill that out if you wish. And during our closing song this morning, just tear this perforated off, send it to the aisle and the ushers will pick it up, okay? All right, let's uh, pause for a moment. And let's pray about these things. Lord, we thank you for your goodness and your grace. We thank you for your presence among us. Now help us to walk in this newness of life, aware that we can move from now to then, to us, and ultimately to them, to the world. Help us to be that witness in Jesus' name. And everyone said... <laughs>